You may be seated. I used to have two cute little grandsons that couldn't carry a tune. But every time I'd go to see them, they'd for, they did this for about three years. They'd say, uh, Grandma, we want to sing you a special. And they'd sing that little song, He's Still Working On Me. And of course, I, what I liked about it was the fact that they were never on key, uh, or never even together. <laughs> uh, I got a big kick out of that. But one day, as they were singing to me, God whispered to me, and he said, yes, and I'm still working on you. And I'm still working on all my children. You're not the finished product yet. You're not exactly what God wants you to be. None of us are. But he's still working on us. And everything that happens is a part of his design and his plan. If you love him, if you've been called by him, it's all a part of his plan and his design. I don't know if you've ever watched anyone do a sculptry. Uh, it, it looks, it seems so cruel to watch a man creating something. Well, I've seen a few women do it too, out of marble or some other precious stone. I saw it in Africa. And it seems so cruel the way they just attack that stone, chipping off here and chopping off there and taking a mallet and knocking off. And but they have in mind what they want that finished product to be, to be, and God has in mind what He wants this finished product to be, and He's chipping away at us, working on us. And I've been asked the question: Does God hate me? The things that's happened to me? No, He doesn't hate anyone. He loves us all, and He feels with us in all that we go through, everything that happens to us. And it's all going to work out for good. Uh, one of the places that my mother used to quote this to me, um, I know you're not going to believe this, but I was such a shy, bashful child. I was so skinny. I got so tired of all those skinny jokes. And uh, my mother and I sat down before she died and figured out 25 different schools that I had started to to get uh, 11 years worth of schooling uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and going to school the first day was the most horrible thing that I could think of and, and my daddy wasn't a, a hobo <laughs> we I mean he built us three homes I remember and bought five others but I was 25 years old before I ever lived a year under one roof and uh, it just um, I grumbled about it all the time. And especially I grumbled about starting to that new school and going through all of those. She got one to legs, one that they don't break. Stand twice in one spot so you make a shatter because you, you just stand once. You don't make a shatter. And uh, there was no new ones. They just kept going the same ones everywhere I went. And I suffered 10,000 deaths. And on that moving, I said, if we could just get put somewhere and stay there. But my poor daddy thought the grass over the hill was greener than where he was. And so we'd pack up and move. And somebody asked me what my home state is, and I never know what to answer. <laughs> I, I was born in South Arkansas, but when I was three years old, we left there and went to move to West Texas. And did some of my growing up on a ranch. And in fact, I learned how to shoot before I learned how to read. The cowboys said, honey, you might meet a varmint. So they taught me how to shoot the six years before I ever started the school. And uh, I had a lot of experiences uh, there. But uh, it was the same old story. Just We just keep moving on. And 
I said, I, I envied people that were born in one house and lived there all of their life. Uh, like my husband. That's what, that's the story of his life. He was born in Louisiana, one red hill, and lived there till he married me. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, later on, I began to understand God's work for us has been traveling. Now, we, we traveled up and down America. We, I think we invented deputation. We went on deputation the first time in 1944. No, that really wasn't the first time. Before that, we'd already done some, but uh, officially we did, we did deputation in 1944. And, uh, I saw later on missionaries had a hard time with deputation, but you know, just kind of par for the course for me. <laughs> And, and somebody said, oh, I just can't sleep in different beds. <laughs> I'd never get any sleep if, 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 if that was uh, my case because many times it's a different bed every night. I sleep in every week. I sleep in three or four or five different beds. And uh, what what I realize now that was good for me that I thought was so awful and so terrible then. God was working on me, getting me ready for the life I live right now. He knows exactly what we need and that's what He's working on us about. And sometimes some of you come to me and say, why does the same kind of thing just keep on happening to me? I said, hurry up and learn the lesson that you're supposed to learn and then it'll stop. <laughs> It won't stop until you find out what God is trying to teach you. You know, if you fail in the first grade, you take it over again. And if you fail in the third grade, you do it over again. Or at least that's the way it used to be. I don't really know now. But but God is putting us through a special course. And He is in control. So many times we think He's not in control. But everything He does... He knows what he's doing. And he knows why he's doing it. And, uh, you know, there's a verse that follows that one that I just read to you. Let me read it right now. Uh, it it uh, is so applicable. <laughs> verse that I read you Philippians 2.13. That is, for, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now that blows most of us out of the saddle. Because that's our life is murmuring and, <laughs> and disputing. But he has said, do all things without murmuring and disputing. And there's many things that will never come to an end until you finally learn to stop mumbling and grumbling. I get a lot of phone calls that start off like this. Sister Freeman, if I could just understand what is happening and why, I could take it a little bit better. The, the answer to that's bad news. There's not one place in this book that he promises you will ever understand anything. But he does say, trust me. He does say, I will not fail you nor forsake you. He said, I will never leave you. I will be with you all the way even unto the end. Hallelujah. And if you could understand, you wouldn't have to trust. And that's what it's all about. Us, us learning to trust Him. Sometimes I hear stories that make me weep. I weep with the one who's telling me all that has happened. And at the same time, I know God is going to great pains, very great pains, to make you what He wants you to be. I loved 
all of this beautiful singing, but I especially love that first song. I'll tell you what it's all about. It's found in the second verse of Romans 12. It says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen, that's how we're going to find out what the will of God is. And it's all about helping us. You know, there is ever, every day we live, there's the temptation to conform to the world. To, to the world's standards, to the world's dress, to the world's habits, to the world's customs. And God's people have got to be different. We have got to be different from the world. There is something about a difference that makes it a little hard for some of us. We don't want to be different from the rest of the world. And we do have our fads in Pentecost. I've watched it down through the years. Somebody gets some idea and so everybody else tries to look exactly the same. And, and, and he says, don't be conformed. You're supposed to be your own person, yourself. And, and uh, put your, uh, put your hand on your heart right now for me and say, I am an original. <laughs> you know how valuable originals are? I mean, they're, they're valuable. You are an original. God made you just like you are. So quit mumbling and quit complaining. And submit to the hand of the master potter who's making you into the vessel that he wants you to be. I look back down the road. I have, I'm especially looking back down the road since last week. Marked 58 years of ministry. My husband and I have ministered as a team for 58 years in many different countries, many different places in the world. But my mind goes back to that first meeting that we held. He got, now this is not the way you do it. He got the Holy Ghost one week and the next week we went told a revival and we haven't stopped since. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to get a little training, a little teaching, but uh, we were in an area of such great need that we just went to work for Jesus. And that first meeting, this widow lady asked us to come and preach in her home. There was no church preaching the truth in that little town up in the mountains of New Mexico, and so we went. My husband actually preached his first sermon in front of a saloon to a bunch of cowboys with a pint in one pocket and a pistol on the other hip, and... Uh, but God blessed us and moved there in a sweet and wonderful way. And some things happened. You see, we went on that trip to go and hold that meeting with nothing. We had our seven-month-old baby, and that was just about it. A few clothes, not many. And uh, we went. We knocked on every door in that town. And one day, I was walking along uh, by myself. We kind of split up. We, first we were going two by twos, but then we split up. And I come to a little Catholic church, and I noticed the ladies out, the little, it was a little a Spanish uh, church, and, and these ladies were out there picking up every little piece of string or every leaf, and they had that yard so clean. And so I complimented them on making the church yard clean and beautiful. And they said, you ought to come inside and see. So I went inside, and it was just 
spick and span. I've never seen a place so that showed so much loving care. And I said, how often does your priest come? And they said, well, he used to come once a year. But now it's more like 18 months. We ne- we don't really know. But whenever he comes, we're going to have everything ready. A little analogy there. Whenever the king comes, we've got to have everything ready. But they said, uh, uh, could you play this organ? It was one of those kind you pump with your feet. And my grandmother had one. And I said, yes, a little bit. And they said, would you play Ava Maria for us? And well, unfortunately, I don't know Ava Maria. But I said, if you've got the notes, I do read notes. So they got me the notes and I played it and they sang. And when they got through, I said, well, let me teach you some more songs. (laughs) And so... I, I, we, I taught him uh, when I think of the goodness of Jesus. I remember the first one and all he's done for me. And I got them clapping their hands and I had a pretty good service going into the Catholic church. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know if I'd have that much courage <laughs> later on, but I did that day. And finally, I remembered that my seven months old baby needed me for food. So I had to, I kissed all of those ladies goodbye and told them I loved them and that I would pray for them. And I did, that they would receive the Holy Ghost. And so I went on my way and my husband and I went to that meeting. Neither one of us had told one secret that we were keeping. God called me to Africa and to preach the gospel when I was 11 years old. I'm I'm ha- unhappy to confess that I argued with him for nine years because I said, God, I never could even stand up in the school class and answer a question. How how can I get, ever get up before people and talk because I, I don't have that ability and go to Africa, that scares me to death. <laughs> and so we had this little argument going, well, my husband was much younger than I. He was only, it was between his sixth and seventh birthdays that his sister came along and took him to a little Methodist revival next door to his school that he'd gone to. And the Methodist preacher preached. It was a children's revival. And they'd come to the altar. They had an altar. Methodist churches then uh, had an altar. And the the people would come. And then the pastor come and pray for you. And that was a signal to go back and sit down. And my husband went. And he began to weep. And the pastor prayed for him. And he didn't get up. He just stayed. So the pastor come back and prayed for him again. And he still didn't get up. And so finally his sister, who was a married lady, she thought, i got to do something. So uh, everybody, they were all wanted to leave. And he's still down there crying. And so she went and got him up. And his nickname is Bug. I met him as Bug, married him. We started preaching his sister known as Brother Bug. <laughs> and uh, he's got a name that he dislikes intensely. And uh, nobody's ever heard of it but, <laughs> uh, either. So he got tired of explaining it to people. So he just, he's a bug. And so she said, Bug, what was wrong with you? He said, those little black children were choking me to death. And what was happening is he got his call to Africa. After that, he'd wake up at night and he would cry and cry. And his mother'd hear him cry. And she'd come and say, Bug, what's wrong with you? And first he'd say, my stomach hurts. Well, then she'd give him castor oil. And so that got so bad that he had to think of something else. So then he got where he'd say, earache. I got the earache. So he could stand sweet oil in his ear better than he could castor oil to drink. But... Uh, he kept this a deep, dark secret. And as a matter of fact, we met and got engaged as backsliders, both of us running from a call to preach and a call to Africa. Well, somewhere along the line, before the marriage took place, God got us started in the right direction. 
And but he was his interest was all in the business world, and that's what he was going to do. And he refused to listen to that still small voice. But finally, he got to the place that he was ready to uh, do God's will. He prayed people down in four different states. He's trying to get the Holy Ghost. Took off everything they said. Did everything they said, but nothing worked because he wasn't willing to say yes to God. But way down the line, thank God, he did say yes to God, and. That's the call to preach. And and I said yes to the call to preach. I said yes in my heart to the other to God, but then I hoped he'd just put it off forever. And uh, then uh, I was afraid to tell him I was called to preach uh, to Africa. Uh, because I, we, we accepted preaching, but neither one of us would ever mention Africa. He was afraid I wouldn't go to Africa with him if he mentioned it. And so we were keeping this deep, dark secret. Well, that night, after I'd been in the Catholic Church... Uh, we always had a, a, a nice little crowd came to the widow lady's home. And that night, nobody came. And I always rocked my baby to sleep. And I sat down to rock the baby to sleep. And as I rocked back, a voice said, first time I ever heard God speak, said, move. And I looked all around. Everybody else is praying. Uh, there were seven of us staying in the home there. And everybody else is praying. And I thought, well, now who? I, I heard somebody say move. So I rocked back again, and the voice said more urgently, move away from the window. And I thought, now that's so strange. I can see nobody. Everybody else is praying, and I, I hear this voice. And I, I rocked back the third time, and then it was just like the voice shouted, get up out of the chair and move. Well, I finally, I'm a slow learner. I finally got up and moved. And I went over to the lady of the house and I said, a voice told me three times to move away from that window. We didn't know, no refinement like cords for the curtain. So she took the broom and pushed the curtain closed. And nobody came to church that night. So the widow lady suggested that we just have an all-night prayer meeting. So we did. And at daybreak, we washed each other's feet and shouted and rejoiced and Sister Davis, the widow lady, came under the anointing of the Holy Ghost and she began to talk in tongues and gave the interpretation. And she said, to the darkest land of Africa, you must go. You will wade through blood and through water and suffer as Paul of old. But many great and mighty miracles will be done in the name of Jesus and thousands will be born into the kingdom of God. And uh, she got out of the spirit real fast because she had three children there. And she said, who in this room is called to Africa? My husband was, uh, I met a lady who just accidentally came to uh, one of our services in Dallas area just about, um, I guess, a month ago and told me that it was her mother that we had the meeting in her home and she said, we've still got that little homemade uh, couch or a uh, little love seat, they called it, that you was kneeling at and uh, praying. And when she said, who in this room is called to Africa? I looked at my husband and he looked at me and we both burst out laughing. God had told on us there was nothing to do but admit it. Hallelujah. And get ready to go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That was uh, May in 1939, the second week of May, 1939. And so uh, the next morning, uh, just as soon as she could, the neighbor lady uh, come running over. She said, is everybody all right? Well, I wondered why didn't you come to church last night? She said, Though, uh, the, there was a drunk Mexican man, young man, in the window, and he had his knife ready to plunge into your back. 
And God had moved me away from the window before He could do it. He held His hand, I'm sure, because He had ample opportunity to do it. Uh, 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 but uh, th- that was why that nobody come to church because He chased everybody away. And that lady also was chased away. But we had borrowed an old Model A Ford because it was a young lady that had to herd sheep and she wanted so bad to come to their services. So we said, well, we'll just come out there and hold you a service. And so we borrowed a Model A Ford and we went out there on the mountainside and it was uh, such a majestic scene there. It was so beautiful. And we had a lovely service and God really moved and touched the young lady's heart. And But when the service was over, uh, my husband grew up riding horses and he said, uh, hey, hey, could I ride your horse a little bit? And he got on the horse and he began to ride and and uh, ride around a little bit and finally he come back he said will this horse ride double and she said yes my brother and I rode him double to school we'd ride him double to school all the time and so he said honey you got on that wide skirt uh, come I'll get behind the saddle and you get in the saddle and let's just take a little he said you haven't got to ride a horse either for a long time and so I climbed up and that's when the rodeo started uh, that that Mustang went completely nuts and he thought he was on display uh, somewhere uh, to show off his bucking ability and my husband uh, said I'm going to jump I'm going to fall off and and I thought he told me to hang on but later I found out he really told me to to fall off too but he hit me on the head uh, with his chin and so I wasn't hearing real well and I thought he said hang on so I hung on (laughs) and and the horse took off and he's running and he's running and he's running and and they're running too. They had limbs. They're going to hit him if they can get to him. But I'm hanging on for dear life. And I hung on him quite a while. But finally he got to some mesquite limbs, low hanging, and he raked me off with them. And then he turned around and began to paw me. I remember curling up and praying, God, don't let him kick my head and don't let him kick my stomach. And... But it was quite an ordeal, and it, was, it took them a little while. It seemed like forever. <laughs> those those was going right by my head, but he just missed my head, and God answered my prayer. And then uh, they finally got there with their limbs and chased him off of uh, me. And uh, my husband said, "Honey, are you all right?" I said, "I think so." Uh, but then I discovered I couldn't straighten out my legs. I said, "Straighten me out. I can't. I can't move." And uh, so I'm laying there under a tree in a very forlorn spot. In fact, there wasn't any road. They had to almost build sections of a road to get the Model A Ford in there to get me. And finally we got back to Sister Davis's home, and he's standing by the bed, and he said, what are we going to do? He, he kept saying, don't your legs hurt? He said, those skinny little legs has lost all the hide on them. I mean, they're peeled. Uh, I said, no, my arms hurt where he kicked the hide off, but I don't feel anything from my waist down. I was laying there, and he said, "Uh, what are we going to do? He said, you know, the nearest doctor is 80 miles. The nearest hospital is 120. I said, how much money do you have? I think it was 42 cents that he had. I said, well, there's nothing for us to do but trust God. And so they started fasting and praying for me. This happened on Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It stayed the same. You see, sometimes God has to teach us lessons of patience. 
trust in God and wait for his answer. And this is a message that America desperately needs. To trust in God and wait for his answer. I've heard it so often. Well, if I don't feel better by Tuesday, I'm going to the doctor. Let me tell you something. The greatest tragedy that's ever happened to America is medical insurance. Because we're trusting other things instead of trusting God. But I said, all we can do is trust him. There was nothing else. We didn't have a vehicle. We had nothing. He had 42 cents. And that was it. And uh, on Saturday afternoon, he's going to the open air service. We had one every Saturday afternoon. And uh, I called Bernice Davis. She was the one that turned up at a service. And she didn't know I was there. Uh, and just she'd come to visit her lawyer son in Dallas. And her daughter-in-law brought her. Uh, to the church that happened to be the nearest one to she looked in the manual and found it and I was so delighted to see her again and I I said Bernice would you just pull me around on the bed so that my feet are on the floor so let my knees bend but let my feet be on the floor and put on my house slippers because it was cold in the mountains in May and uh, I said now have you got me fixed she said I don't know what we're doing and why we're doing it uh, she said, now what? I said, all day. I woke up this morning with this much of a scriptures. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. I said, I, it's time for me to do something. And you've got to help me. I said, I want you to get hold of my hands. And you say, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And you start pulling me up. Hallelujah. And, uh, and I'll be saying, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And so she started pulling. And when she got me up to my full height, the power of God went through me from my head to my toes. And I felt it. Hallelujah. And I screamed. My husband was just coming in the gate. And he charged in, what's wrong, honey? What's wrong? What's wrong? I said, it's not wrong. It's right. God has just healed my back. Whatever was wrong, it's now right. But my legs are killing me. I never hurt so bad in my life. Pray for my legs that the skin will grow back fast. Because I was suffering. And, you know, I have looked back on that. I know... What got in that horse? Satan did because he thought if he could paralyze me, he could stop us going to Africa. And you see, there was so much hinged on it. And many years later, I'm talking about many years later, I had to have a full-length x-ray in Africa. And the doctor was a personal friend. And he said, Sister Freeman, you never had told me that your back was broken. I said, my back's never been broken. I completely forgot about it. My husband said, honey, remember the horse? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, never mind. Whoever took care of it did a tremendous job. But it was a very bad break right at your waist. Let me tell you, that's the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whatever happens to us, He's still in charge. He's still on the throne. He knows what He's doing. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And no matter what all we met in Africa, we could remember that if God can heal a broken back, and the doctor said it was a very bad break, but he said whoever took care of it did a wonderful job. Let me tell you, King Jesus, the great physician, still takes care of a wonderful job. 
there's, there's no limit to all that He can do for us if we could just believe Him and trust Him. And when things start going wrong and start happening, and uh, one lady said to me, she said, well, when I was a sinner, I was doing real good. But now since I've been serving God, everything under the sun has happened to me. She said, if it keeps on like this, I don't know if I can keep on going. I said, you can keep on going by trusting Jesus. And it would have happened anyhow and it would have happened worse if you'd have stayed out there serving the devil. But you've got somebody to call on. You've got someone to lean on, just like the lady sang. Someone to trust in. Someone to lean on. And know that whatever he's allowed to happen, it is for your good. It's going to work out good. One thing by itself. I mean, take a cake now. I mean, that you, you try to eat separately what any of the ingredients of cake. I mean, butter, lard, or whatever you use. Just to take that, that that's very unpalatable. I mean, uh, and flour. Just eat dry flour. See how far you get. I mean, even the bacon powder tastes awful because I tasted it once. <laughs> and the sugar, uh, you don't want a, two cups of it. I mean, it's uh, a little bit pretty nice, most of us think. But, uh, uh, you know, but get it all together and put it in the oven. You see, that's the way God does. He lets this happen to us, and then that happen, and then the other thing, and then he puts it together, and in the end, it's good. In the end, we can say it's good. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Someone said to me recently, don't you hate getting old? I said, I'm having too much fun getting old. Uh, there's a lot of things I love about it. Uh, and uh, one of the main things is that I see the end of so many stories that I just saw the beginning of. Uh, and uh, I've seen how that things work out. I've watched these people that decided, well, no, there's no need to be so straight-laced. We don't, we don't have to uh, just uh, uh, be like we are and go by our strict doctrine. And, and we, we're just a bit unreasonable. And, and this is not necessary. And I've watched them start conforming to the world. And I've watched, I've lived long enough to see the end of those stories too. And I'll tell you, I've never seen one that had a happy ending. Just watch for a while and you'll see. Don't cringe the next time those that are teaching you teach holiness and purity. And stop cutting your hair and and throw away that blush and that foundation and that stuff. You don't need it. There's something about godly women that will be beautiful. You see, the devil will do anything to get us to conform to the world. I mean, that scripture alone blocks any change. I came into this thing many years ago. In fact, I was baptized in Jesus' name. When my birthday comes, I can say I've been baptized. Well, no, that's the Holy Ghost. When I, I was baptized when I was nine. I'll be 81 this year. When my birthday comes, I can say I've had the Holy Ghost 70 years. Uh, because I got it when I was 11. I wish it had had me all those years, but it didn't quite get me for a while because I was too busy running from the call of God. But when I finally did make up my mind, it's been so wonderful to walk with Jesus and to do go His way and do what He wanted done and, and be obedient to Him. And I have watched him take tragedies and make them beautiful. And take traumas and paint victory across them. It don't happen overnight. But everything works together for good. It will turn out good. 
We hold our trust and our confidence in Him. We can say He's never made a mistake and He will never make a mistake. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Quite a few years ago now, in Africa, we went through a trial with our responsibility and our work in the beginning was opening churches. We pioneered with this gospel in the southern part of Africa, and in fact, in many parts of Africa, we pioneered with the gospel. And uh, it was wonderful, and it was beautiful, and it was difficult at the same time, many times. But uh, my mother came over. Uh, I was a little bit amused when I noticed in the Herald recently that I was an MK. Well, I was a missionary first, and then I became an MK afterwards, because I'd been in Africa eight years before my mother came. <laughs> So that made me an MK. <laughs> and But anyway, um, my mother came and she said, son, where can I work for God? Well, to go back a little bit, she went to the foreign missionary board and said, I had to raise my boys first, but now they're raised and gone, and I, I'm applying to go to Africa. And they looked at her and said, Sister Eastridge, how old are you? And she said, I'm 63. That's another thing I don't like about you Americans. Having black balloons and black flowers when you're 40 years old? What do, you, what do you call it? Over the hill or something like that? That's the most ridiculous thing I've heard. I didn't start writing books till I was 60. And I, I, you, you haven't started living yet when you're just 40. I mean, you, you hardly drive behind the ears. And this mindset of, it's all over with when I turn 40. There's such a lot of bosh I never heard. Well, my, and my mother didn't believe it either. They said, how old are you, sister? And she said, 63. And they said, well, don't you think you better let the young men go to Africa? She said, is any young men trying to go right now and, and uh, they said well no not right now and so she went home and sold her car and came and uh, hallelujah hallelujah and that sweet lady stayed nine years before she ever came back to America and in the end she built two churches and opened up a new country for this gospel and did a tremendous work for God thousands in the judgment will rise up and call her blessed because that she went and worked in Africa. But she was building that church and in Durban, South Africa, and the municipality of that city was giving her a lot of problem. Uh, and uh, so she called and said, son, I need some help. One thing about um, my husband, he, he made me a daughter-in-law to my own mother. I mean, she'd write and say, dear son, also noting the girls. She would include me as an after effect, as if just like I was a daughter-in-law, but I liked it. It was good. And uh, so uh, we were, it hit us at a time that was a little bit difficult. Uh, South Africa had such strict segregation, something we prayed against from the time we went there in 1948. And today it is no longer, thank God. But when we went to a town, we had to think about opening four churches because they could not worship together. They didn't go to school together. They couldn't even walk in the same door of the post office together, which was so ridiculous. But anyway, there was white people and black people and Asiatic Indians and mixed-blooded people. Now, the black people, your true black person that those days in Africa uh, would, if their daughter comes came home with a mixed-blooded child, they chased her away forever because they would not accept them. They were so proud of their tribal connections. And uh, so that made a whole nother class of people. They were my special love, and I worked among them. 
I have held as many as four Sunday schools a Sunday, going from one area to another. And, and out of those Sunday schools were born churches. And this was our desire. But the white people was the hardest to reach. Uh, we couldn't, uh, the country was uh, very religious, um, of the, of the Reformed Church. The Presbyterian Church is the nearest to what it was, uh, though they do have Reformed Churches in America, but they work closely with the Presbyterian whenever they come to America. But in Africa, this, uh, the leaders of the country were usually preachers of this church, and the most horrible thing that they could think of anybody doing is being rebaptized. In fact, they, that was a, a dirty word that they called us, the rebaptizers. <laughs> and uh, it was very difficult to find any place to hold services, and we couldn't get any openings, uh, and we didn't ever live for the first couple of three years there. We didn't live in a place where we could invite anybody for services. But... Uh, God gave us uh, my husband my husband's faith. We didn't have the money to this day. I don't know how he did it, but he woke up one morning and said, "I'm going to build us a house." And I said, "Did you fall on your head real hard yesterday? You must have fall out of, fell out of a tree on your head because we don't even don't even have gas money to go answer all the calls we get to come. And uh, how are you going to build this house?" He says, "Not my responsibility. God told me to do it, so it's his responsibility to send in the money when it's needed." And so uh, we we planned it. So that was how we started the white work. He, we had an enormous living room and all the bedrooms upstairs. And he said, our church will start right here. And it, and it did. And we just got that house built and we're just getting started with this, uh, the white work, reaching the white people. And this was because the gospel was go to every creature. That's what Jesus said. And so we had four, uh, under four labels that we had to work. Thank God that the labels were removed now. We have bent back over there on visits and, uh, and uh, all colors conference, all races conferences. And it's been tremendous to see what God is doing. And as a matter of fact, there is a great revival in South Africa today because of the mercy and the greatness of God. But uh, we had started a Sunday school, and I think this was about our third Sunday. And my mother said, I've just got to have help. We didn't know what we could do. We'd met a couple that uh, he, they were, were willing to come with us, and he had his own plane. And he said it was 420 miles, switchback roads and bare. I mean, you could not drive it under 13, 14 hours. The road was so treacherous. So uh, my, my husband knew we couldn't get down there and get back for Sunday services, and that was so important. Uh, and so our friend said, uh, I'll fly you down. And he had an old Fairchild plane, and so he did. He flew us down, and we did everything, held some services for my mother. I'm going to fly back early Sunday morning. The pilot's wife kept our children, and we had told our oldest daughter, Sandra, and and our oldest son, Dale, uh, to go back to town and fix everything for church, you know, move the little bit of furniture we had out, which wasn't very much, and get the chairs in and everything set up for church and Sunday school. And uh, that morning early, I woke up from a terrible dream. I dreamed a snake came in the bed between my husband and I and spit first in my face and then in his. And I woke him up shaking and I said, oh, please help me pray. I, I think I've had a warning. Uh, and I told him and he said, no, this is not good. And so we prayed and we thought maybe we'd have problems with the trip, but we didn't. It went good. And we landed at the little airport uh, as prearranged and 
uh, the man called his son to come and get us, and uh, and he said, I'll be right there. But between the time that we called and he got to the car, there was another call that came. The three young people, his sister, the daughter of our pilot, and um, my two children, our two children, were in the car, and it had a terrible wreck on the way. And they said, go quickly to the hospital. So we went straight from the airport to the hospital. It was a horrible feeling to drive by that gray car that had crashed. Uh, we later found out what happened, that uh, a tubeless tire was nearly flat, and they didn't notice it. And just as they turned a curve to go up a high hill and gave the car speed, uh, the young lady, the pilot's daughter, was actually driving. My daughter was in the back seat working on her fingernails, and uh, the car sideswiped several trees and then hit one head on. And we looked at it and saw that that Jesus Christ car will never roll again. And that was a sad thing for us, but sadder still is we don't know what's waiting for us at the hospital. The girl's name was Sally. I got there. Sally's nose was cut off. Later on, I held her hand while the doctor sewed her nose back on. And then our son was not hurt. He was the only one. He just got down under the dash, and he had some bruises. But our daughter had broken out three windows with her head, and her skull was crushed. And when we walked in, six doctors were standing around the stretcher she lay on, had on a little white dress I'd made for her glass and blood all over her and uh, she was in a delirium she was tossing from side to side and we could hear the bones grinding together in her head as they were crushed and she was saying just broke my heart she said mommy i'm trying to get there to get the, the chairs set up and everything ready for sunday school and i was going to make those phone calls you told me to make to tell people to come to church but mommy i'm in this black place now and i can't get out mommy and so the doctor said she doesn't know what she's saying but still it was awful to hear her and she would cry uh, mommy i'm trying so hard but i can't get there and then and the seventh doctor joined the rank. It was a, we had a doctor friend, and he loved our children. and And he came and he stood there and he wept. and And I looked at him and I said, "Is there any hope?" And he said, "None whatsoever." He said, "If she were to live, she would not have a mind." And uh, no doubt she's bleeding internally. One of the doctors said, "Would you allow us to do surgery so we could see what's happened inside?" And uh, my husband said, would that save her life? And they said, nothing can save her life. And my husband said, no, then we will not have surgery. And then the doctor said, uh, Reverend Mrs. Freeman, you need to go. You are facing a very sad thing, and you need your strength. I believe you've just flown in from Durban, and you need to go and get some rest. And we stood there quite a while. It was in the afternoon, but... It was no improvement, and finally, with, they insisted that we go. They would let us know if there was anything, any change whatsoever. And so we went home to get ready for church, and uh, it was so hard. Uh, Sandra's very musical, and and my piano playing is kind of like cornbread and turnip green type, and and uh, so I, I I thought, oh, we don't have her to play tonight. And I'll, I'll have to play in her place. But while I'm getting dressed, the phone rang. And this lady that had been to one service that we had held, and she, her, she was yelling at me on the phone. 
Sister Freeman, what kind of a God do you serve? I said, I serve a wonderful God. A God who knows the end from the beginning. A God who knows all things. She said, well, I don't think he's so hot. Uh, Sandra was the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. I've never seen a girl her age that served God and worked for God like she did. Where she worked in the Sunday school and everything. And I didn't even know this lady knew about it. But she knew all about it. And she said, why would a girl like that be cut down the prime of her life? She said, we went to the hospital and saw her. And she'll not live through the night. We went to see the car. You said, kids, young people in America raise money to buy you a car to work for God. And it'll never roll again. That's what your God has done to you. I want to know why. I said, well, my confidence in my God is I will not ask him why. I have learned why did this happen is a dead end street. There's no mercy down that road. There's no hope. There's no promises of God that work there. You do not have the right to ask the Almighty God why anything happens. I've, I've, I've heard people say uh, that the, the, you can do it in a certain, certain way. I don't know any way that you can do it because He's in control and He knows what He's doing and He has all power. And if you want access to His power, you better not ask Him why did anything happen. And I said, I cannot ask him why. I do not intend to ask him why. I trust him. And if he is through with my daughter, and it's his will to take her, I bend to the will of God. (coughs) She said, I demand an answer. You pray right now and ask God to give me an answer. If you don't want one, I want one. And so... I slid to my knees and my Bible was there and it fell open. And I want to read you the scripture. <coughs> Hallelujah, Jesus. <coughs> Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. (coughs) Hallelujah, hallelujah. (coughs) And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I read those verses to her and for the first time in my life I noticed both houses got the same storm. God's not going to wrap his children in cotton wool and put them up on a shelf. They are slipped in an African expression, cotton wool. That's cotton. Uh, he, the things that happen to the people in the world, it's going to happen to us. Cancer, wrecks, tumors, all kinds of things. Our kids are going to get on drugs, some of them. God forbid that it should happen, but it has happened. Two of my grandsons was on dope. Thank God he's delivered both of them. But uh, everything that's happened to everybody in the world is going to happen to us. But the end of the story 
is what's so beautiful. I said to her, I said, when the storm is over, my house will stand. If God spares my daughter, I will be so grateful. Seven doctors have said there's no hope for her to live. But it's in God's hands. And whatever happens, I'll feel like both my arms have been cut off because she helps us so wonderfully if God takes her. But my house will still stand. My house will stand. Thank God for the storms. I say thank God for the storms. Because the storms prove that you've got something. This will stand through the greatest storm. Hallelujah, hallelujah. She had nothing else to say and I hung up. And somehow we got through that service that night. My husband had gone just walking past an auction and stopped to look. He bought a a little, um, they called it a mantle clock, striking clock for three dollars. And we really treasured it. Uh, We was cheated out of it by, I mean, we took it to a man to repair. Uh, A worker twisted the, the key off in it, broke it off in it, so we had to have it repaired. And uh, the man closed his shop and left with everything, and that's how we lost our clock. I would have loved to have kept it. But at times, I disliked it because it was so loud. You never heard such a striking in your life. And that night, we we just got to bed, and it was beginning to strike for midnight. And somehow or another, when there's a tragedy or a sickness, the midnight hour is just so grim and it just seems like everything is emphasized and I heard that first bong downstairs I mean we heard it good upstairs in fact if we was a block away I think we would have still heard it bong and I thought this is it my daughter is going now and uh, suddenly it hit me as the second bong come it struck very slow and deliberately and loud as that second bong I just Held my hands like this. I said, God, Sandra is in my hands now. Though she's in that hospital, I have her in my hands, and I'm giving her to you. I don't want you to take her with me unwilling. If it's your will to take her, I want to give her to you. And as I began to pray and giving my child to God, I heard two or three, four, five, six, Seven, eight more bongs. And then just when the twelfth one come, God said, because you gave her to me, I'll give her back to you. I come out of that bed. My husband and I met at the foot of the bed. And he said, did you know our child was dying? I said, yes, I knew. He said, do you realize God has given her back to us? I said, yes, God told me he'd give her back to us. Early the next morning, the phone began to ring. How's Sandra? How's Sandra? And I said, Sandra's going to be all right. What does the doctor say? I haven't talked to a doctor. I heard from heaven. It's a whole lot better to hear from heaven than any earthly advice that you can ever have. Because when you hear from heaven, it's always on the mark. It's always accurate. Thank God, thank God, thank God. This accident happened Sunday morning. And uh, 
When I got to the hospital, I went to the nurse's staff and I said, you promised to let us know if there was a change. And my girl nearly died at midnight. And they said, that's right, Mrs. Freeman. In fact, the doctor pronounced her dead. But before we have time to make a phone call, uh, she started breathing again and her heart started beating again. Uh, And uh, we don't understand it, uh, but uh, she's doing real well uh, right now. And on Friday, the doctor called and he said, well, uh, a broken skull does not mend in five days. (laughs) But uh, uh, your daughter's doing so well and she's so dissatisfied with being in the hospital, I I suggest you come and get her today. Uh, And so, I mean, five days in the hospital. Uh, And uh, she got there and they had a wheelchair and she said, no, I'm not going to ride in that thing. I'm going to walk out on my two legs because God has touched me by His power. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. (laughs) What a God we serve. Now what was good about that? We lived in a fairly large town, but most of the people in that town heard what happened And that work began to grow so fast in a very short while. We were hunting another place to hold services. And before too long, we're able to buy a church that we could remodel and make it our own church. God knows what to do. It was a terrible thing to go through those few hours. And God doesn't let us know what's going to happen. You know, think about Daniel in the lion's den. Now we know what happened. It's a wonderful story. But he, Daniel didn't know. He didn't know anything. But he went down in that lion's den with that power of God that had been with him all along. And that power of God brought him the victory. I always picture Daniel picking out the fattest lion to use him for a pillow. And he had a good night's sleep. The, the king didn't have any sleep at all. But Daniel had a good night's sleep. You read the story of Joseph. And it's a, man, it's a sad story. Brothers wanting to kill their own brother and then finally end up selling him as a slave. And what he went through, sold on the auction block. The beloved son of his father. And follow him all the way through. Now we know how the story is going to end. But Joseph didn't know. He didn't know, but he held on to his God. You see, that's the secret. You've got to hold on to your God and your faith and your confidence in Him no matter what happens. And when that tragedy is over, it will work out for good. And I don't know why God said tell you that story, but I've told it. Because I want you to know that whatever happens, God will make it work for good. Everybody in that town heard about this girl that walked out of the hospital five days after her head was crushed. Hallelujah. And she told me one day, quite a few months later, she said, you know, Mother, I've got a hole in the back of my head. I said, what do you mean, honey? She said, it's about this big and there's no skull there. 
I guess a hairpin in it could be deadly. But she said, I think it's a little souvenir to always remind me what God did. He protected me and healed me. And this is the amazing part of the story. She was wearing glasses. She was very nearsighted. And she tried to read. Her glasses got broken, so we went and got some new prescription, and she couldn't see through them. And we took them to the doctor, and I said, does concussion improve eyesight? A very severe con concussion? He said, never. It would make it worse instead of better. I said, well, I don't understand it, uh, but test her eyes. He said, she doesn't even need glasses. <laughs> she did not wear glasses for many, many years. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. God is a God that knows how to take any situation and make it beautiful and make it good. Because He's working on us. He knows what He wants us to do for Him. And there is a passage of Scripture that had been running through my mind a long, long time. And they tell me Anthony Mangan preached on it. At a recent retreat, I was not there, but I heard about it. But I want to turn and read it to you because it it has just jumped out at me time after time. And I thought, this is something that needs to be done. We're not doing what God meant for us to do. In the second chapter of Acts, this Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and we're expecting a, a glorious outpouring of the Holy Ghost. But if you're here tonight without it, you don't have to wait till Sunday. You can get it tonight. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. But this is what Peter said. A part of his sermon, verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, and this is the last days. There is no doubt about it. So many scriptures have been fulfilled. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your daughters shall prophesy, and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. But God has made a promise for last day daughters to prophesy. Now this does not mean foretell. This means to testify and to witness and too many of our sisters are not doing what God planned for them to do. And Sister Freeman, I could never tell anybody what God's done for me. Let me tell you, God will make you a spokesman that you can do something. I heard a preacher tell an incident just recently that just stuck in my mind. He said that God will help every one of us to be soul winners, to be witness for Him. This is a part, this is what He's been working on us about. This is what He's trying to bring us to. And He said in His church, He had, there was a young man that He was so handicapped and had so little to work with, you know, uh, lights on, nobody home, uh, uh, three bricks short of a load or two sandwiches short of a picnic or whatever, however you want to say it. Uh, but they sent him to school to find out if there's anything he can do, and they found out he could sweep floors. And so uh, he was uh, working at two Baptist deacons, gave him a job in their factory. So he went into the conference room, didn't think there was anybody in there. So he come in, pulling his big broom, singing, Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. And uh, 
So then he saw these men. Oh, he said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know y'all was in here. I'll go back and I'll come another time. And they said, what kind of a church do you go to? He said, I go to Pentecostal church. They said, isn't that one of those churches that believes in talking in tongues? He said, don't y'all? <laughs> now anybody could say, don't y'all. <laughs> you don't, you could you say, don't you all. I mean, you know, maybe you would say it more refined perhaps than he said it, but, uh, so then these two men decided we're going to have to change this young man from this Pentecostal church he's going to. Uh, and uh, they began to try to work on him and work on him. And finally one day he realized what they was doing. And he said, y'all still don't talk in tongues? <laughs> and uh, uh, so they said, well, we'll have to. He said, come to my church and see how they do it. And uh, so they said, let's go to his church and maybe we can get the right words to say to him to get him out of this. They liked the boy, so they wanted to go to get him delivered. And, and so they went to the church, and that was the night that two uh, Baptist deacons, them and their wives, both, all four of them got the Holy Ghost that night. And it all come about because a young man said, Don't y'all? <laughs> and you see, you don't have to have beautiful words. You simply have to have the Spirit of God moving in you and you will prophesy. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You will tell others what God has done for you and what He will do for them. You will do it. God plans for this church, this age. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Last days. We all know it's the last days. But why aren't we prophesying? Philip had four daughters that prophesied. This does not mean foretell. This means to extol Jesus and tell what he can do. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. God must help us understand tonight that he's been working on us a long time to get us to the place we'll do what he wants us to do, and that is to tell others. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And women have a special talent that God put in women alone. If you read the story of Jesus' life, his disciples, when Jesus told them that he's going to be crucified, that he would be buried and would raise the third day, they didn't hear. They were too busy arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And it was two women, one of them, we don't know her name, one anointed his feet and one anointed his head with their most precious possession. Every Jewish girl in, at, at birth received an alabaster box of precious ointment. And this was for two things, her wedding and her death. She was to use half at her wedding and half at her death. And these two ladies gave the only valuable thing, no doubt, that they had. They gave it in honor of Jesus, in recognition of what was ahead of him. He said... They have anointed me for my burial because that's what they did. None of the men, even those that followed with him every day, realized what was happening. But women have a tender sense. They don't even always understand all that it means. But there's a tenderness in a woman that we could reach so many people if we would do. And it's not what you can do, let me quickly tell you. God is not expecting you to do it by yourself. It's what He'll do for you if you'll give Him a chance. Just turn yourself over to Him and say, God, I will do what you want me to do. That's the finished product He's looking for. 
Some people, in order to try to get closer to God, separate themselves with others. And I don't believe in that. I believe in taking my Holy Ghost everywhere that I can. I've got to tell you this. Uh, one year we were in Salt Lake City at a conference. Sister Beckton came to me and said, Sister Freeman, I'm trying to get 25 officials' wives, she's a long way down the officials' list, <laughs> to get to a regional field supervisor's wife, get 25 wives to go. The Mormon church wants us to come to a banquet in Brigham Young's home. Would you be interested? I said, no, not really. What's the price tag? She said, 1850. I said, I can think of a lot of places to use 1850 rather than Brigham Young's house. I have no curiosity or intention or desire to go and she said well I was just hoping when my husband came in from board meeting that night he said honey you made a bad mistake go find sister Beckton and tell her you will go if you don't have 1850 I'll give you 1850 he said you need to go there to be a witness I said they won't give me a chance to say anything he said you don't have to say anything but you can still be a witness for the truth you can still be a witness for God and I didn't really understand, but I, I believed him and I trusted him. And so I found Sister Beckton and said, I'll go. She said, well, will you please help me to get some more? And we finally, between us, we got 25 that would go. And the night before, I stayed awake all night and prayed, God, I want to be a witness tomorrow. Make me a witness in Brigham Young's home. I want to be a witness. Uh, you see, if you'll pray and seek God, it's, it's not what you can do, it's what He will do. And He knows how to work. When, when it looks hopeless and impossible, He knows exactly how to work. And uh, so uh, I got there and they seated me in the middle of the table and the first lady got up and she's talking about their choir. And I didn't. one thing of note I did notice was that uh, their choir goes to practice at quarter before seven every Sunday morning. I just wondered how many Pentecostals would go to choir practice at quarter seven. I appreciate their devotion in doing that. And then they stay there till three o'clock in the afternoon before they get a chance to eat or, or do anything. And she bragged and said, they're all professional people, doctors and lawyers and nurses and teachers and etc. And I've heard them sing and enjoyed some of their songs. And uh, so when she got through then, the lady's going to get up to give us a propaganda. And I'm just praying, God, i got to be a witness. I don't know how, but i got to be a witness. And so the lady got started with her little spiel, and she said about seven short sentences and stopped. And she says, oh, excuse me, my mind just wandered a little bit. And she went back and she started over, and she got to the same place and stopped again. And she apologized, and she said, just give me one more chance. And she started at the beginning and stopped again she, at the same place. And then she leaned forward, and she said, you with a pink jacket. There's vibrations coming from you that stop me from saying what I want to say. Woo, hallelujah. Woo, hallelujah. She said, what have you done with your life? And what is it in you that is stopping me? And I nearly slid under the table. I was so shocked and surprised I never did say anything. Sister Beckton answered, I don't know what she said. But I left Brigham Young's home with great joy because God had made me a witness. And I had acted nice and smiled and, and everything. But God knew how. Uh, to. You don't have to act crazy to be a witness and to be a testimony and to be a, a one who prophesies for Jesus Christ. Because when you tell others about Jesus, you are prophesying. The Lord told me a sad, sad fact. A few months ago, I said, God, what is the problem? 
People in American churches are working their pastors to death. They've got to counsel. they got to run pray for them in the hospital and everywhere. And, and one woman said, I'm leaving this church because I haven't seen the pastor in my house in a month. Uh, and they, they're just like a big bunch of babies. And he said, the Americans, North America gets the Holy Ghost like another acquisition. A new dress or a new car or another new house. And they just get it to enjoy. And that's not what I gave it to them for. I gave it to them to do a specific work. He did give us power to be a witness of Him. Hallelujah. And actually some of us could be liable for a suit. We're using a king's property for the wrong reasons. We're using it for our personal reason, for personal enjoyment. And that's not what He gave it for. You will personally enjoy every minute of having the Holy Ghost. And it will be many side benefits and blessings. But if you concentrate on just using it to pray for your, you and your family, us four, no more, you're in, you're in trouble, big trouble. Because you're misappropriating the goods of the king. <laughs> the king's goods is the Holy Ghost. And he's given it to us for a purpose. And handmaidens will prophesy. Oh, God. Oh, God. Your daughters will prophesy. He's promised it. And it's got to happen. And everything that happens to you, God has given you testimonies. And people like personal stories. And you can tell them. You, you don't have to quote a bunch of scripture. You just said, let me tell you what God did for me. And then you tell them what God did for you. And your story could bring others to the foot of the cross. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to know God and to know His power and to know His reality and to know that you're built on the rock. He didn't put you where you are just because you're prettier than anybody else or better than anybody else. Oh, it's all I've knocked the money out of the offering plate and it's worrying my husband. So <laughs> that's all right. We'll just let it. I'll just walk on it. It's okay. I don't. I don't like that stuff anyhow. <laughs> I, I get rid of it as fast as I can when I get when I have any. <laughs> but God has put us in a special place for a special purpose, and everything that happens to us is for a special reason. He's working on us to help us to do what He wants done. Hallelujah. I, I, the Lord impressed me to tell you a certain story. And I've been sort of trying to get around it. And I know I've talked a long time already, but i just got to tell you one more. God knows how to work out His will. No matter what happens. Now, during that time that I'm running from God, I was going to college. Can you imagine going to college for $5 a month? <laughs> I, I did in 1936. Of course, it's a, it's a long time ago, and I didn't go very long either. But uh, my daddy was sending in $5 a month, and I was working and doing everything I could. And uh, so I was making it until my daddy left my mother and left town with another woman. And there was no more $5 coming in. And it happened the 1st of November. And by Thanksgiving, I was just eat up with longing to see my mother and my five brothers. She had to go stay with her mother-in-law. 
and it was very hard. And I just had to see her. And so there was a preacher's daughter there, and she was also struggling with little finances. And so she and I caught a ride on the ice cream truck to go home. And, of course, our family really had fits, but this was a grandfatherly type man. He was real nice. And, and so, and he said, you girls shouldn't be doing this. But he took us, and I got there, and my grandmother called me in the room. It was my daddy's mother. And I'd stayed with her a couple of years and went to high school because that was the only way I could get to go was to stay with her. And I thought she loved me. But she called me in the room and said, get your mother and your five brothers. My little brothers were 10, 8, 6, 4, and 2 years old. She said, get them out of my house and I will put you through school. She could have done it, but she wouldn't unless there's some real incentive. And this was her incentive. And I said, Grandma, there's nothing in the world that I can do. I have nothing and I know nobody. And, and I can't, I can't do that. And she said, well, if you can't get rid of them, then don't you come back then. And so I walked out of my grandmother's house with no place to go. I went back to school where my things were. And uh, they're telling me to leave because Daddy didn't send in the $5 in November. And they're telling me to go. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I just cried myself to sleep every night. I had a wonderful, sweet roommate. But I wouldn't tell her the whole story. Because she had problems of her own. One day her cousin came. This was Monticello A&M. Monticello, Arkansas A&M that I was in. And her cousin came from West Monroe, Louisiana to see her. And she seemed to be a nice lady, and so I met them. But they were going to go on a picnic with my roommate's boyfriend, and I just wanted them to get up and get gone so I could cry. And I sat down looking out of the window, and I was crying away. And Lee, her cousin, forgot something and come back and found me. So she come over and she hugged me, and she said, Tell Aunt Lee what the problem is. And I told her, I have no place to go, and I have no money. And I'm stranded. My daddy's run off with another woman. My mother's staying with her mother-in-law. And, and my grandma said for me not to come back as long as they're there. I, I don't know what to do. I couldn't pray because then I'd have to admit, yes, Lord, I will go to Africa and I will preach. And that just was too, I mean, I, I loved the Lord and I was trying to live a good life, you know, without obeying God and it don't work. <clears throat> And uh, she said, oh, I wish I had some money to give you. You could come down to West Monroe and stay with me. She said, listen, if you get a hold of any money at all, if you can borrow or do anything, maybe you can come down there and get a job and then you can work. I said, that would be wonderful. But I couldn't see any hope anywhere. And uh, what I didn't know was, even though I was a backslider running from God, God was working. And I never thought the day would ever come that I'd look back on those days and say it was good. But it was good because this is what God did. The 20th day of January. I mean Christmas. There was three students and me. Four of us spent Christmas alone there at the college. Dining hall was closed. We just used scraps and some of them had a little bit of money. I remember we had peanut butter for Christmas dinner. And we were so glad to get it because that was all we had. 
I didn't have any money. I couldn't contribute anything. I gave some of my clothes to the girl that gave the peanut butter, I think. But the 20th of January, I got a Christmas card that was delayed from a young man that wanted to go with me, but I didn't really like him. But he sent me a Christmas card with a $5 bill in it and a poem to his brown-eyed girl. Of course, my eyes are green. Uh, But uh, anyway, uh, I, I wrote him a very, very nice letter, but told him I could not continue the friendship. If this message has been a blessing to you today, please pass it along to someone else or simply tell them about PreachItAudio.com. If you would like to find a spirit-filled church where lives are transformed in your area, I encourage you to email us today at churches at PreachItAudio.com. Let us know the city and state you live in and we will reply back to you very quickly to direct you to the church in your area where you will receive the strength you need for your life today and where you too can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost.